I'm so excited to be amongst God's people today and so excited to see all that He is doing. And uh, at a couple of points this morning, I'm going to give you some insight into what is in my notes and uh, on this iPad screen. And um, the first insight I'll give you is that usually the first heading on my screen is introduction. And uh, there's no introduction this morning. And uh, I'm reminded of... uh, one preacher who said that um, you don't you don't defend the word of God, you just let the word of God loose and it'll defend itself. Defending the word of God is like trying to defend a lion, and uh, you don't do that. You just let the lion out of its cage. And uh, so, in that sense, maybe we don't need to introduce the word of God, <laughs> but uh, let's just ask that the lion of the tribe of Judah will be mighty amongst us this morning through His word. God, thank you. Wow, for worship. Thank you for prophecy. Thank you that it's your word that can take a dark, cold heart, a dead heart, and bring it to life. God, we pray for words from you this morning that waken the dead, that soften hard hearts. God, soften my heart this morning. God, we pray for dormant volcanoes in our lives, each each one of us having areas that that need your breath, that need to see fiery rivers flowing. God, we pray that you would do that. God, we hold on to this promise from Maiski that you are with us, you are here. God, I believe with all my heart that where your word is proclaimed, your spirit loves to come, that you love to bless. Would you do that this morning in the mighty name of Jesus, because it's all about Jesus. And if you agree with that, would you say amen? We're in Acts chapter 9, and uh, it's, 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 it's been a, a roller coaster ride. In Acts chapter 7, we hit the low point, if you like, of um, uh, uh, Stephen being martyred, the first person to give his life because he professed the name of Jesus. And then surprisingly, counterintuitively in Acts chapter 8, we hear stories of numerous unnamed believers breaking out and sharing the gospel in different places. And then it zeroes in on a guy called Philip. And he went to a place called Samaria in line with Jesus' prophecy that the gospel would be proclaimed, that Jesus would be witnessed first in the city of Jerusalem, right where they were, and then in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and then to the ends of the earth. And I love that, what Cody brought this morning about Matthew 28 verse 19. We should read that verse and consider ourselves called. In line with that prophecy, Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. People are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are baptized. They believe in the name of Jesus. The the, the demons are cast out shrieking. The Bible says in a wonderfully understated way, there was great joy in that city. And I love that we were singing that there is joy in the house of the Lord today. And then... um, Wonderfully last week, this mysterious character bursts onto the scene in the Ethiopian eunuch, and we celebrated that as Africans, we can see our place in the story. 
And I mean, you start to feel pretty good. Demons being cast out, gospel being proclaimed. Africa's in the picture. A eunuch has been saved. Someone who was outside of the people of God, couldn't go into worship, has been brought in. These are great times. But just as you're thinking, it's getting better and better and better and better. Acts 9 bursts onto the scene, and the African Bible commentary says of these verses, it's like a chill runs down our spine as we read this first verse again. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. I want you to picture this. Saul is breathing out murderous threats. The language that's being used here, that's been used of Saul before, and that is used of Saul later again in the book of Acts. The Bible scholars say it describes someone who looks more animal than human. The verbs being used to describe here in the Greek, they're the same verbs used to describe wild boars ravaging a vineyard. Later on, they say that Saul is the guy who caused havoc in Jerusalem. That word havoc could be translated mauled. If you've watched nature videos or been to the Messiah Mara and watched a, a, a lion kill or, or hyenas gathering around a corpse and mauling it, this was Saul in action. And he's still breathing out murderous threats. He has wreaked havoc in Jerusalem. And the church has been scattered, according to the book of Acts, all except the apostles. But Saul doesn't think my work is done. He says, you know what? These, these Christians have run to Damascus. I am going to follow them to Damascus. Now, in our days of travel, I think we mentioned last week... If you want to go to Kigali, you've got to go and get a COVID test. Then you've got to buy an air ticket. Then you've got to brave the Mombasa Road traffic. And by the time we think of all that, we think, no, I will not go to Kigali. I will wait a little bit. You can be, if you decide now I want to go to Kigali, you can be in Kigali, what, this time tomorrow? Jerusalem to Damascus, the point I'm making, was a six-day walk in the Middle Eastern sun. And Paul hears that. He says, no problem. I'm going to do my COVID test, and then I'm going to start walking. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Just got three things to say over our few precious minutes together this morning. We're going to see the gospel coming to a Pharisee. We're going to see the gospel coming to this man called Saul. And it comes in three dimensions, and those are three headings for this morning. Number one, Jesus finds us. Number two, Jesus loves us. And number three, Jesus sends us. We see here Saul 
is about to get saved. It's pretty impressive. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. The question we're answering this morning, it's, it's, it's important for you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. The first question we want to answer is how do you get rescued? How do you get saved by Jesus? We're going to see that in action. And some of you might be on your spiritual journey. You might not call yourself a Christian yet. You might not be sure if you are a Christ follower. If that's you this morning, we're going to see how. We're going to ask the question, how do you get rescued by Jesus? And if you're thinking, but I've, I've already been rescued. I've already become a follower of Christ. Maybe I've been following him for years and years. If that's you, I want us to ask the question, if you have been rescued by Jesus, how did you get rescued? And that, is, and that is a key question. It's a key question because how we answer that question determines the kind of Christian life that we live. It is relevant to us today. It is relevant to you today. What your perspective is on how you got rescued, how you got saved. Let me illustrate that for you. The story close to close to home for many of us. Last week on Sunday, we prayed for Sheshi. Um, he's a pastor in a sister church in Dar es Salaam. And uh, he had to be admitted to hospital. He was in hospital for two days. Um, he has uh, advanced brain cancer. And we, we prayed for him Sunday morning. Sunday, Monday, he was in hospital. And uh, they thought he had a stroke. And they tested him for a stroke. It wasn't that. They thought it was COVID. They tested him for COVID. It wasn't that. But the, the, the devastating news that we've, we've all received this week is that the tumor, which hadn't grown on scans for a number of months, that tumor has started to spread and spread significantly. And uh, his, a couple of his friends, together with his wife, Trudy, they sent out an email. And uh, they said to people, this is the, we want to share some news with you, but I want you to listen to how they share the news. They said, before we share this news with you, we want to remind you of something that Sheshi said in early 2020, before he knew he had cancer, he was speaking to his local church community, Hopak and Dar es Salaam, and he was, he was um, um, uh, pastoring them through a challenging time they were going through, and he said these words, listen carefully, Sheshi said, no matter what you are going to experience or might experience, it is nothing compared to what you have already been saved from. At that time, Trudy says the cancer was already growing. And they said, what, what potent words. Whether you're facing a tough time as a school community, whether you're facing life-threatening cancer, listen to this wise advice from this seasoned pastor as you potentially face difficulty in any area of your life. Nothing brings helpful perspective by looking at how you got saved. Remember how you got saved. Reflect on what you and I have been saved from. This is a massive significance to our spiritual health. And under this, I, I, I said my first point is Jesus finds us. Some of you may have heard that. You may have thought, what, 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 what is this? Kindergarten, Sunday school, this is Christianity 101. Jesus finds us. This is, this is simple stuff. And I, it's, it's, 
My big point under Jesus finds us is I want you to understand the point I'm making is that you've got to get this. We don't find Jesus. He finds us. And the difference between the two is massive. Why? Because, friends, there is a way of looking back at how you got saved that leads to a life that looks like Paul's life. It's full of sacrifice and mission and joyful giving and praying and worshiping through stocks at the midnight hour. It's full of trusting God for miracles. It's full of joy and sorrow. It's full of facing death with a, with a, with, with, with a confidence in Christ. And then there's another way of understanding how we got saved, how we got rescued. There's a way of understanding how we got saved that leads to half-hearted Christian lives. There's a way of, of, of understanding how we got saved that makes giving 10% of your gross income away seem like a lot. Your story's told of... Uh, church where the offering basket is going around pre-pandemic and the usher brings the, the, the uh, basket around to someone. This person he's, you know, puts a couple of coins in, throws it in there, and the usher just stands there, carries on smiling. <laughs> this guy, he's actually a visitor, and it's a little bit awkward, and so he pulls out a note now, not just coins, puts that in. Hopes this guy will move on. The usher just carries on standing there, smiling. This guy thinks, well, I'm not coming back here, but he puts his wristwatch in, gets his cell phone, puts his cell phone in, and really hopes this guy's going to move on. <laughs> Finally, in total exasperation, he takes the basket from the ushering guy, puts it down on the floor. He steps into it. And the ushering guy nods and then moves on. <laughs> What's the point? The point is the Christian deal isn't about 10% of gross. It's about giving our whole lives. And friends, there is a way of looking back at how we got saved that makes us a people who are a dancing people. I've said it from this platform before. I made the decision when I was sometime in my late teens that in line with that Matt Redmond song, we will be a dancing generation. Dancing because of your great mercy, Lord. Your great mercy, Lord. And there's a way of looking at our salvation that makes dancing inevitable. And there's a way of looking back at our salvation that makes dancing a bit of a radical option, but I'll consider it from time to time. <laughs> People once asked Spurgeon why he shouted when he was preaching, and he said, it's because of the truths that I believed. If I believe the truth some of you believe, I find myself whispering into the pulpit. <laughs> but because of what I believe about God and who he is, listen, I found Jesus is only worth whispering about. But Jesus found me. That is a truth that makes me want to shout. <sighs> Will we be a dancing generation, friends? And here's, here's why this is important. It's important because I want my children to see me dancing for Jesus. Why? Because we were made to dance. 
And if there's one thing worth dancing for, it's Jesus. Have you watched the Premier League soccer? Listen, friends, no one goes to the World Cup and says, what's everyone shouting about? He says, the World Cup, I think we're going to shout. No one arrives at a wedding and says, what's everyone dancing for? He says, it's a wedding, we are going to dance. Even if we are white. <laughs> Listen, friends, there is a brand of Christianity that is sending a subliminal message that it's okay to dance for anything except dance for Jesus. There's a brand of Christianity that watches the soccer players. 11 people manage to get a leather ball into the back of a net. What has that got to do with the price of tea in outer Mongolia? I don't know. But have you seen the guys who score it? They're like, And we think, yeah, it's football. Friends, I don't mind if you do cartwheels after scoring a football goal. But then I reserve the right to celebrate the defeat of death. To celebrate that I was rescued years ago. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I've been found. I was blind, but now I see. Can I dance about that? And people have been watching me for the last 20 years and they said he's young, he will get over it. <laughs> Friends, I am 42 and I'm still warming up. 42 years old is the second half. How many of you have heard of, I'm going to age some of you here, Toby Mac? <sighs> oh, it's part of a group of those of you who haven't heard of him, you can Google him called DC Talk. And uh, they kept us going in the 90s. And here's the thing. We turned on YouTube with the kids. Guess who I saw on YouTube? Toby Mac. Still dancing. I said to my kids, tell that guy he's going to break something or pull something just, just, just to slow down a little bit. But he was dancing in the 1990s. He's still dancing in the 2020s. And friends, when I get to heaven, I'm going to find Toby Mac and say, let's dance together for Jesus. Because I couldn't find you while we were still on earth together. Does that make sense? But it's not just because the music is cool. It's because it's rooted in how do we get saved? We don't find Jesus. Jesus finds us. The point of the story that I want to draw out is that Saul was not searching for Jesus. If you'd interviewed Saul on the road to Damascus, right, walking 20 kilometers a day, it's 240 kilometer walk, actually 40 kilometers a day. He's walking. And if a reporter had come and said, uh, Mr. Mr. Saul, Mr. Saul, Mr. Saul, where are you going, Mr. Saul? Well, just tell us about yourselves. And he'd have said, well, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was circumcised on the eighth day. And regards to, with regards to legalistic righteousness, I am faultless. I am zealous. And there is a sect of people who are blaspheming the God of the Israelites. And they call themselves the Christians. And they say that the one they follow was the Messiah. But he was actually crucified like a common criminal right outside Jerusalem. Then they started to set said around evil rumors that this man 
man had risen from the dead. And so I am going to find people of that sect, of that cult, of that heresy who have fled from Jerusalem. I am going to Damascus to find them and arrest them and bring them back. And if we kill a few on the way, that is not such a bad thing. If you said to him, um, that, that, that was all a little bit quick, uh, Mr. Saul. Um, can I just put down here that you're searching for Jesus? He says, no, 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 I want to be clear. Jesus is dead. I'm not searching for Jesus. I'm searching for his followers to arrest them and bring them back. I'm searching for Christians. What are you going to do when you find them? One more time. Listen, read my lips. I'm going to arrest them. Bring them back. I want you to understand Paul's mindset. It wasn't like he was looking for a God, looking for Jesus. Ooh, there's Jesus. I found him. Hi, Jesus. Can you forgive me of my sins? When God rescues anyone, it's not because anyone finds him. It's because God finds us. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He said that agnostics, that's people who, don't who, don't, who will say, I don't know if there's a God. Agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. C.S. Lewis telling his testimony, he says, to me as I was then, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. The vibe I want us to get here is really well captured by a movie. I actually haven't watched the whole movie. Can't recommend for or against, but there's this epic one-minute scene in a Liam Neeson movie called Taken. And uh, I'd love us to put that video clip on and capture some of the mood of it. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Well done, guys. Great job. Tash, when I said, please find this clip for me, she said, this is so cliche. But I do it anyway. Here's the deal under point number one. Saul of Tarsus went to arrest Christians. Instead, in this story, Jesus is arresting him. Do you understand that? Sometimes we think, well, what, well, how do you become a Christian? Oh, well, you listen to someone preach for 20 minutes if it's a good church, 40 minutes if it's those one tribe guys. <laughs> then I don't know if you feel a bit fuzzy in your heart. You can put your hand up. You can go to the front. Maybe they'll pray for you. That's how you get saved. No, 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 no. 
You get saved when Jesus looks for you and then Jesus pursues you and then Jesus finds you and then Jesus arrests you. That's what happened to Saul. He thought he was the cat. I'm going to find the Christians. And on the Damascus road, Jesus says, Saul, I found you. And we see him arrested, blinded, knocked to the ground. The one who thought that he would walk into Jerusalem and, and, and find these Christians stumbles in blind, being led by the hand because he's been arrested by the love of Jesus. What does this make us do, friends? I had 10 practical things I wanted to pull out of this. We'll just keep on going until we run out of time. Number one is we embrace a gospel humility. You see, Saul's greatest achievements didn't qualify him. You could have said, but he's read the Old Testament and he's been to synagogue. This guy is qualified. That didn't qualify him to be rescued. He says it this way in Philippians 3. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, which is our human tendency, we want to put our confidence in how, in how intelligent we are or how educated we are or how much money we've got or how well-behaved our children are or, 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 or how we've kept all the church rules. All these things are a form of confidence in the flesh. And Paul says, listen, if you think Saul, who became Paul, says that if you think you've got confidence, friends, I had more circumcised on the eighth day, ouch, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He was saying the best things I can bring are actually rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, my Lord. Listen, friends, whether you are a Christ follower or not yet a Christ follower, your best days don't put you beyond the need for God's grace, and your worst days don't put you beyond the reach of God's grace. These are the truths worth jumping about. These are the truths that mean that there's joy in the house of the Lord today. Because Saul, on the one hand, he was supremely qualified. If anyone could have said, I think I've earned my salvation in the eyes of the God of Israel, it would be Saul. And he learned, no, you have to be humbled and believe in Jesus. And people would argue that in that process, he came to realize that these people who he's been persecuting are actually representing the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his blood, starting with Stephen's, their blood was on his hands. One preacher paints the picture of Saul going around to churches that he had helped plant and laying hands on elders as we are hoping to do in a couple of months' time and laying hands on deacons as we are hoping to do in some weeks' time. And as he laid hands on, on deacons, he'd have thought that his hands were dripping with the blood of a deacon from a church in Jerusalem called Stephen, whose death he'd been present at. Now, friends, watching online right here in this room, I don't know what you've done. But no matter how good it is, it doesn't put you beyond the need for God's grace. And no matter how bad it is, it doesn't put you beyond the reach of God's grace. That's Paul's testimony. No matter where we are, religious or irreligious, 
rule keepers or rule breakers, religious experts or murderers. Jesus says, I have a very particular set of skills. And I will pursue you. I will find you. And yes, actually, something needs to die. That's why you get baptized. But that gives way to a much greater life. Jesus finds us. We embrace the gospel humility because our best days don't put us beyond the need of God's grace. We embrace a gospel confidence because our worst days don't put us beyond the reach of God's grace. If you ever see a Christian who is not humble, it's a Christian who hasn't yet fully understood the gospel. If you ever find a Christian who is not uh, confident, it's because they are a Christian who has not yet fully understood the gospel. Jesus finds us. I think that was pretty good, but I think it gets even better. Jesus finds us, and then Jesus loves us. Oh, how he loves us. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. first big idea is that Jesus finds us. We don't find him. And the difference between those two, it's chalk and cheese. The second big idea is that Jesus loves us. And here I'm talking about developing a doctrine of the church as the body of Christ. Where I'm going with the second point that Jesus loves us. By us, I mean the church. Church in the Bible only means two things. Number one, it means the world, the worldwide church gathering of all believers um, um, who've ever lived or ever will live, the universal church. But that is expressed biblically and throughout history as gatherings of local churches. Someone said the church is you. You heard that? Listen, church is ecclesia. It means gathering. So it can only be you if the you is plural. Does that make sense? I can't say I'm the church. I can't say I'm a gathering. I can't say my wife Tash is a roving, moving, one-person party. I can't say that. But I can't say she's a gathering. Does that make sense? Because the church is a body. 
And we are members of it. We had a spectacular display of that this morning, praying in these members. And here's the big idea. Under this, Jesus loves us. Jesus loves the church. The implications... Jesus said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Saul sort of thought, I don't know, I don't know who you are. I can't see you behind the lights. I, I, I don't recognize your voice, though he might have met Jesus when Jesus, before Jesus was uh, crucified. We don't know. But he said, oh, no, 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 I've got no problem with you. I'm going to Damascus to find these her heretics. That's who I'm persecuting. But Jesus' question is, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? I'm not persecuting. And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And some people say that Saul was blinded, not just to humble him, not just to stop him dead in his tracks, not just to arrest him, but to give him time to think about what he believed. And I think he'd have played that voice and that phrase over in his mind again and again in three days of blindness, of Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that leads us to two Stunning implications. If you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. Leads to two stunning implications. It's number three in our application points. What you do to the church, you do to Jesus. And number four, what you do, Jesus does. Do you understand that? Do you get the magnitude of that? Saul says, I was persecuting the church. When I did that, I was persecuting Jesus. It's, it's like Jesus is the head and the church is his body. You can't persecute one without persecuting the other. What you do to the church, you do to Jesus. You love the church, you're loving Jesus. You link arms with the church, like these families did this morning. You're linking arms with Jesus. What you do to the church, you do to Jesus. Second insight into my notes, as I penned these words, as I pondered this, I said, wait a minute, that means that if you reject the church, you're rejecting Jesus. Don't stone me. Because I actually put a question mark in my notes. Because I, 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 I said, I never want to get up in front of people and say something manipulative. I never want to represent God or Scripture intentionally, inaccurately. And so I put a question mark there. And I said that that statement, if true, is dangerous. <laughs> if you reject the church, you reject Jesus. Kept on studying for a couple of hours. Here's what I found. Does, any, does anyone else get as nervous as I do? Luke chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus' words to his disciples. Are they up on the screen? There's some words I want your help with. Jesus says, whoever listens to you, listens to? Whoever rejects you, 
rejects. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Matthew 25, verse 40, the king will reply. The end of the story of the sheep and the goats. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus says to the sheep, well done. I was hungry. You fed me. I was in prison. You visited me. I, I was naked and you gave me clothes. They said, we didn't, we've never even met you before in person, Jesus. And he says, no, you've got to understand, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. To the goats, he says the opposite. And they say, when do we not see you? When do we see you and not help you out? And Jesus says, whatever you didn't do. For the least of these brothers of mine, you didn't do for me. Does that make sense? I can see so many nervous faces around. Let me be clear. If you leave one tribe, it does not equal leaving Jesus. Everyone relax a bit. If we come to the Bible and it never makes us uncomfortable, then I question whether we're coming to the Bible with ears that are listening to Jesus. Does that make sense? What we do to the church, we do to Jesus. I feel that's black and white in Scripture. And the other stunning implication is that what we do, Jesus does. I'm going to take my kids to school tomorrow morning. Jesus goes with me. Jesus goes because I go. I go to the hospital on Tuesday. Jesus goes to the hospital on Tuesday. Everyone's getting nervous. I am not saying you are Jesus. I am saying what the church does, Jesus does. And Paul believed this with all his heart. He believed with all his heart that what you do to the church, you do to Jesus. And I've tried to show you from the words of Jesus himself, from the way Paul lived his life, from the analogies he gives. He's the head, we're the body. He's the husband, we are the church. We're all members of Christ. And as he explained the gospel, the good news to this Pharisee that to be rescued means to become a part of Jesus' body, there came a time when Paul was writing a letter to a church in a wild city called Nairobi, I mean Corinth. And man, these Corinthians knew how to party. They would get drunk on the communion wine. They wouldn't have orderly prophecy, like magnificent prophecy like we had this morning. They would have tongue-speaking competitions. <laughs> and there was, I think it's to them that Paul said, there is a kind of sexual immorality happening in this church that doesn't even happen in the rest of the city outside the church. <laughs> and he says, okay. One crisis at a time. <laughs> Let's talk about sexual immorality. How do, you, how do you speak into a church in a sexualized city, in a sexualized culture, and get them to start acting the way that they should in a way that is pleasing to God? 
And I want you to track with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. People are sleeping around. The church isn't relevant. They don't have anything to say. Paul says, no, 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 no. How you got saved and the fact that you got saved into something, that's the body of Christ. It means something. He said, verse 15, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? You see where we're going with this? Paul says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it said the two will become one flesh. One paraphrase, I couldn't find which one, says that, listen, when you jump into bed with a prostitute, you're pulling Jesus into there with you. Because you are so united with him if you are a believer. Does that make sense? And you think, no, no, how could anyone ever do that? And Paul says, that's my point exactly. Church, when you realize who you are, you realize that Christ has forever and irrevocably united himself with you. And the Christian life isn't primarily about you holding on to Jesus. It's about Jesus arresting you and Jesus holding on to you and Jesus uniting us to himself. And in that union, we are so identified with him that anything that is done to us, he takes as being done to him. And anything that we do, it's like he is doing it as well. And so you would never... Sleep around when you understand who you are in Christ and what it means to be the church. Does that make sense? When I said Jesus finds you, Jesus loves you, people were like, hey, hi, 101. Yes, it is 101. But when we get this, it's life-changing. This addresses how we face cancer. It addresses how we handle our bodies and our sexuality from puberty until we're 99 years old. It affects whether we're a dancing generation, giving our lives for the gospel. Or whether we still consider anything done for church or Christ too radical a sacrifice. Jesus loves us. Jesus finds us.